Hello, and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. It highlights the confusion that people have that they think love means accept and approve of everything that someone does. And that's not what love means at all. Love is unconditional, an unconditional commitment to someone's highest good. In the series so far, we have learned of God's uniqueness. He is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent or omnipotent, eternal and immutable. He is creator, lawgiver, redeemer and judge. Dr. Corbett is in a seven-part series on the subject of God, one you may not have heard preached on directly. Let's join him now for part five of the God series, his focus this week, God the Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, today could be the turning point in someone's life. The day, the moment, right now, when you can reach into someone's life, someone's world, and turn them around, rescue them. I pray, Lord, that what I have to share will be faithful to your word. It will be faithful to who you are. It will be faithful to what you can do. And it will be faithful to what you are about to do. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been doing a, a short series on God, looking at God. And one of the, the things that we've looked at so far is who is God? What is it that makes God God? What are the exclusive things that make God God? So what do we know so far that we've seen about God? Some people, especially children, at some point, if you're a, a Christian parent, you'll have your children ask you this question, who made God? And this is not an odd question. I think this is a predictable question. It's a common question. And the ancient Greeks had a, a way of uh, answering that question. And that was, well, another God made God. Well, who made that God? Well, another God made that God. And on and on and on it went. And they actually pictured it as... Uh, turtles sort of just a big turtle and, and so the, once there was a in Mormon theology by the way these are the people that identify as latter-day saints which is a, uh, an odd term but they are called Mormons they believe that God was once a man like we are a man a human being and it's the same sort of thing where did that man come from and so once there was a young Mormon boy who, and I think I heard Ravi Zacharias say this, a young Mormon boy who became so confused over what he was being taught by his parents and by the Mormon church that one night as he lay in bed, he prayed to God. He said, I'm not talking about, I don't want to talk to God. I want to talk to the, the top dog God. I want to talk to the boss God. The one who no one created but started it all. And what do we know about and the intuition of that young boy was this. At some point, no matter how far back you want to go, that becomes nonsense. At some point, we have to accept God is uncaused. No one caused God. Because if someone caused God, they'd be God. So God is uncaused. The problem we have in trying to understand this is we have nothing to compare it to 
Because everything in our world has been caused. Someone caused it. This pulpit was caused. Someone built it. In fact, it was Jim who's, who's not here today because he's in Bali. Um, <laughs> poor guy. Not here having fun like the rest of us. <laughs> but Jim caused this. This building was mostly caused by Jeff. There is a screw missing on the outside cladding and he said it wasn't his fault. But it's, but it's Jeff caused this. When it comes to everything in our world, it was caused. Someone planted the seed and so on and so on and so on. But not God. And we have nothing to compare. There's no comparison to something, someone who is uncaused. God is therefore unique. Unique. There is no one like him. In Isaiah chapter 40 verse 18, and I'm not going to have all the scriptures on here. This is so you who are taking notes can actually get practice. To whom, it says in Isaiah 40 verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him in Isaiah 40 verse 25? To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And in Isaiah 46 verse 5, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? In other words, God is saying, I'm unique. There is no one like me. Now, we've also seen that God is immaterial. We are material. We have a material. We are made up of atoms and, and those atoms comprise cells. God is not physical. He is immaterial. Now, before you think of immaterial being, well, then he's kind of like a vapor. No, he's not a vapor. That's water vapor. That's material too. And here's, here's where it gets difficult for us to contemplate this. Immaterial doesn't mean not real. Immaterial doesn't mean not physical. But it's a different type of physical. If I can just cause you to have a bit of a headache for a moment, I want you to think about something. What is it that makes you, you? I was in a, a medical ethics lecture with Dr. Sands. Dr. Sands, you were... Oh, there you are. You're there. I don't know if you remember that. We were at the LGH, Year 5 medical students, medical ethics thing, and Dr. Sands drew on the board a person, just on the whiteboard, just drew a person, and he asked the students, what is it that we could take away from this person and they would cease to be a person? So he rubbed off an arm. Are they still a person? The answer is yes. He rubbed off the other arm. Are they still a person? Yes. He rubbed off a leg. Are they still a person? They, the student said yes. He rubbed off the other leg. Are they still a person? There's not much of them left, but are they a person? They said yes. He rubbed off part of the torso. Are they still a person? They said yes. And eventually got down to the frontal lobe, I think it was, Dr. John. Was that about right? The frontal lobe. And he said, are they still a person? And technically, Dr. Sand said, yes, they're still a person. And all there is is just like this blob. It's the frontal lobe. It's somehow functioning without arms, organs, limbs, but still a person. What is it that actually makes a person a person? Because it's not your physical stuff. You could lose a leg and still be you. You could lose both legs and still be you. You could lose both arms and still be you. You could lose an organ and both your arms and both your legs and still be you. But what is it that makes you you? It is immaterial. 
As Christians, this should not surprise us. We call that our soul. And as someone, as a, as someone said to a doctor, you could cut me up in 10,000 pieces and you'd never cut my soul. You'd never find it because it's immaterial. Now, it's the immaterial part of us that causes us to ponder, to think. Neurologists, and I've mentioned this before, neurologists have now discovered that we think, then our brain fires. And the question is, how did we think? Because for many people, how you think is you use your brain, but we now know that there is something immaterial that causes us to think, then the synapsis in the brain happens. So when someone comes up and says, can I just pick your brains for a minute? I go, no, no. You can have a piece of my mind. I freely give that out. Mind is immaterial. And the mind, your mind is, is part of that thing that we call soul. It's that core of our being. That's what makes us us. I'm told every seven years we replace most of the, the cells that sort of skin cells and so on. There are some cells that we live with for the rest of our, from conception through. But for the most part, we regenerate cells. But it's not just cells that make you you. It's your soul or Philosophers who don't like to use spiritual terms use fancy terms for code for the things that we common people just call soul. They call it centre of self-consciousness, which is a way of saying soul. But it's your centre of self-consciousness that makes you you. It makes you you. It makes you think. It makes you feel. It's where your memories are stored. It's you. God is one being, immaterial, with three centres of self-consciousness. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He is one being, but three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Some people see this as a, a problem because how do you explain the, the Trinity, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit? How do you explain that? Because what do we compare it with? Nothing. That's the whole point of unique. Unique is like, if, if you can finish that sentence, it's not unique. God is one being with three centres of self-consciousness. He is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, can think freely. They feel freely. The Bible talks about, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's an emotion. Some people think of the Holy Spirit as a force, like energy. You can't stick a fork in a PowerPoint and upset the electricity. It'll upset you, but it won't upset electricity. Electricity is not a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. So God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. This is what we know. Now this is not a problem. This is an answer. This is a solution. It tells us this, that Father, Son and Holy Spirit forever, forever, ever, ever in what we call eternity, and I'll use this word in a moment, were, were in a community where they loved each other. And this is so important because love is not something that has no object of that love. 
If you say you love and you can't express that love, you're not really loving. But God has always expressed love. What else do we know about God? Before his love, he's actually this. He's holy. God is holy. And holy is almost akin to that word unique. Because holy means not common, not like everyday stuff. God is so incredibly beautiful, incredibly special. He's not to be taken lightly. He's holy. It doesn't mean you need to... Holy is not um, something that implies if you want to be holy, you've got to shave your head and wear orange and live on top of a mountain. In fact, that's going to give you a cold head and high altitude sickness, but not necessarily make you holy. God is holy. The thing that challenges me about Jesus, and Kim mentioned all that he went through, that he willingly endured rejection. And as I was thinking about Christ this week, I thought, you know, he was the happiest man that's ever lived. He was the happiest man that has ever set foot on this planet. He was the happiest man to have ever been born. Amazing. And yet at the same time, the Bible says he was a man acquainted with sorrow. We sing that song, Man of Sorrows. So just because someone's sorrowful doesn't mean they can't be happy. Just because someone's sorrowful doesn't mean that's their all-the-time disposition. Jesus was the happiest man that's ever lived. And yet he, he knew what it was to be sorrowful. And this is a part of being holy. I, I, I don't know how you respond when you're sorrowful, when you're sad, when you're upset. But Jesus didn't lash out at anyone. Was Jesus funny? Yeah, he was funny. But was he ever funny at the expense of anyone? You ever thought about that? Like, he, never, he never made people the object of humour. He never did that. He often pointed out what people did. Say the Pharisees, the religious elites. And he pointed out that what they were doing was silly. But not them. What else have we seen about God? God is love. God is love. First John chapter 4 verse 8. And the fact that it's first John. John was a disciple chosen to follow Christ from about the age of maybe 16 years of age. Pretty young. And by the time he was done, he would have been 19, 20 or so years of age. And so at the age of 19 or 20, he's in the upper room, John Mark's mother's house. Uh, her name was Mary also. And in that upper room, on the night before Passover, which kind of surprised the disciples, because Jesus said, go and prepare Passover for me. But he, he asked for them to do it the night before Passover. And in that room was the true Lamb of God. The Lamb of God was roasted for Passover. And there's no mention of the Lamb in the accounts 
where Jesus is in that upper room with his disciples. But John tells us this. He was there and he was leaning against the chest of Christ, looking up at the face of Christ. And if you think about it, what would you have heard if your ear was pressed against the chest of someone? You would have heard the heartbeat of Christ. It's a a beautiful metaphor for just how close this youngest of the disciples was to Jesus. When the trial of Christ came, it says all the disciples scattered. Peter stayed outside. John went inside. And John came out and Peter was gone. Because a, a little girl scared Peter away. And John was the only disciple who was at the cross and watched the whole thing. He was the one, one of the seven statements that Christ uttered from the cross. Two of them were directed to John. One directly, one indirectly. John, this is your mother. Mary, this is now your son. So John was really close. He knew Jesus and and he says the thing that impressed him the most was this statement. It's in 1 John chapter 4 verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And that's how you can tell if someone really does know God. They love. Because God is love. We live in an age now when even that word is so confused. Because as every parent discovers... You have your children say when you don't give them what they want, when they want and how much they want of it, immediately. Sometimes children will say things like this. You don't love me. And I think it's, I don't know if kids said that in the 1800s. I wasn't there. I'll check with some of you later, but I... um, But it it highlights the confusion that people have that they think love means accept and approve of everything that someone does. Accept it and approve it. And that's not what love means at all. Love does not mean that. Love is unconditional, an unconditional commitment to someone's highest good. 1 John 4 verse 16, John says it again. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. For those of us who have come to know God and to know the love of God, can you reflect back on how you were before that event? Can you reflect that since that event... Your attitude toward people changed. Your patience with people has changed. Your sympathy for people has changed. Your empathy for people has changed. Because God's love is at work in you. What else do we know about God? God has exclusive attributes. Exclusive. If you have any of these attributes, you are God. Here's the first one eternality eternality that means no beginning so that's what uncaused means no beginning 
and no end. God is the only one who has eternality. He dwells in a dimension called eternity. The second trait or attribute of God is immutability. Immuti- These are big words, aren't they? Immutability. It means does not change. Now we should go, oh, thank God. Because if I said to you today, God is love, but tomorrow, we don't know. This is a problem. But God was love yesterday. He's love today. And he'll be loved tomorrow. <sighs> thank you. That's not the Islamic concept of God. It's not the Hindu concept of God. It's definitely not the Buddhist concept of God. But it is the view that the God of the Bible is presented as having exclusively. He is immutable. Um, I'm not. I've changed. I've got wrinkles that I I wasn't born with. I've got a grey hair somewhere. (laughs) I've changed. We change. But God's character never changes. Praise God. Here's another I word. Exclusively possessed by God. Impeccability. That is, impeccable means utterly good. Utterly good. God is utterly good. Everything he does is good. He cannot do other. He is good. Now we get into the omni words. Omnipresent. He possesses omnipresence. For the Christian, the one who's come to know God as the God of love, the God who's reached out to them, the God who has forgiven them of their sin, the God who has exposed to them their true self and caused them to see their need for a saviour and we've called out to him as our saviour and we've asked him to rescue us and he has and he's transformed our life and he's given us a hope that we never had and he's caused us to feel a love for people that we never had and he's caused us to see the world completely differently from his point of view this is good news because when life goes south when troubles happen when stuff gets overwhelming guess who's there with you God. Lo, Jesus said, I am with you always. God is omnipresent. Now mind you, if you're not a Christian and you think you're going to get away with it, whatever it is, this is really bad news because you can't run from God. The psalmist said, even if I run to the depths of hell, You see, you are there. So I want to encourage as many as possible at the end of what I have to say this morning to see God's omnipresence as good news, not bad news. Next word is omnipotent. God is omnipotent. He possesses omnipotence, which means all power. Nothing is impossible for God. God cannot do anything logically inconsistent he cannot do anything against his character but he can do anything because he is God and number six omniscience 
God knows everything. Not only does he know every fact, not only does he know every algebraic equation, not only does he know calculus, not only does he know the, incompl the complete elementary table, not only does he know trigonometry, and all this information may have helped those students who've just done maths and chemistry exams a few weeks ago, but God knows every choice you could make, every choice you might make, every choice you will make. That, that's pretty smart. I said before, Jesus was the happiest man to have ever been born, but he was also the smartest. He knew stuff. He knew everything. Because he represented his father. We've also looked at the titles of God. What do the titles reveal about God? Let me give you just some of them, a sampling of them. This one is one of the first ones used in the Bible. It occurs in Genesis uh, chapter 17, El Shaddai. It, it means the almighty God, the almighty God. Genesis 17 verse 1, this is one of the first occasions God revealed himself to anyone, Abraham in this instance. It says, when Abraham, or sorry, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, that is Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, translated into English, I am God Almighty. That means he's all powerful. All might is his. This is how God identified himself to Abram. Walk before me and be blameless. How else did, did God reveal himself? Well, we see that to Hagar, Hagar, when she was cast out by Sarah, she described God as the God who sees. And in fact, it's, it's that Hebrew word, El Roy. And here it is in, in Genesis chapter 16. This is how she describes God. So Hagar named the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. You are, she said, El Roy, the God who sees me. For she said, here I have seen the one who sees me. But the only name ascribed by God to God is this one, Yahweh. You'll notice I've put the vowels A and E in small caps. Because the, the Hebrew is a consonantal language. It doesn't have vowels. It has what's called little flick marks, which are called diacriticals that give vowel sounds. So we think that Y-H-W-H in Hebrew is pronounced something like Yahweh with, a, with those vowel sounds. And this is when God appeared to Moses and Moses said, Who shall I say has sent me? God said, Tell them Yahweh. And how do we translate that into English? It's called the Tetragrammaton and we're not exactly sure, but it's something like this. The God who is, the God who was, the God who will be, the God who is, I am. I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. It's rendered in English like this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And it's interesting that when Jesus was confronted by opponents, he described himself as I am. No mistake about it, in the Greek, I am. Ego, ami, I am. How else is God titled? Yahweh sit can you. Sit can you. It's in Jeremiah 23 and verse 6. The Lord, our righteousness. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now all of these names that people ascribe to God tell us something about who God is. He is the God who sees us. He is the God who is our righteousness. And he is the God of peace. Yahweh Shalom. Shalom means peace. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. That's all we have time for tonight, but for a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select the God Series Part 5 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, there are four acts attributed exclusively to God. He is Creator, Lawgiver, Redeemer and Judge. And God went to extraordinary lengths to redeem us. He paid the greatest price possible to redeem you. More from Dr. Corbett next week with God the Father. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you join us again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.